you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to Luke chapter 18? Luke chapter 18 is where we'll be. As you walk down the halls of a business, a major corporation, hospital, or even when you look at uh, even when you look at the wall at a fast food restaurant, times you'll see like these pictures, and these pictures are the employee of the month. What I always seem to notice about those pictures is they seem to be about a year and a half old. So someone had a really good idea. There are about three or four of them. And then someone had lost their good idea or at least the mojo to keep it going. But at least for a few months, the corporation or the organization said, this is what it means. This is what it means to be like an ideal employee. This is, what our, this is the, the values that our company represents. Look at them. Look at them in the month of February. Look at them in the month of October. And you'll see, like, this is, they, they went above and beyond. If we were to bring it, that kind of concept over in the church, and we'd hang up pictures going down the wall, I wonder who in your mind would be, like, the church, Christ followers of the month. Like, who, who gets September? Who gets October? Inevitably, it's, it's got to be at least one of those pictures will be some sweet lady who gives and who serves and who doesn't have much, but like loves the Lord. So certainly we put her picture up. And there, there would also be the category of person, like the pillar of the church kind of person. So like whenever a critical decision needs to be made, you want them in the room, you want them like their wisdom and their insight. So that person would probably have their picture up. And then we, we certainly would remember like the nursery worker, they, they would have that, the one who just slugs it out week after week, they would have their picture up. And maybe also the evangelist, right? The one that just always seems to be telling people about Jesus, bringing people to Jesus, we would have their picture up. I, I mentioned that, I, I think it's a little stretch, but not much of one to say in this portion of Luke, over the next two weeks, the end of Luke 18, the beginning of Luke 19, I think Luke is going to hold up some pictures. Actually, I think Jesus is going to hold up some pictures of some individuals and say, this is what it means to follow me. This is what it looks like when you follow me. And we would kind of, if we're just to use our our natural thinking in Luke 18, we would picture like Luke 18 talks about a Pharisee and we hear Pharisee and think negative things. They certainly wouldn't have in that culture. They would have recognized no one seems to be more interested in godliness than the Pharisee. So Probably the first followers of Jesus might have thought that that would be a picture, the picture of a Pharisee, but he doesn't get his picture. Maybe the rich young ruler, I mean, this is one who keeps all the commands has done since, so since he was a kid. Surely he gets a picture. This is the way you, you, you're, you follow God in his will, but he doesn't get a picture. But the person I'm going to talk about this week, I think would get the model, the picture, the example for us to follow. And also the person we'll look at next week. Let's read the next story in the section that we've been going through. It's Luke 18. We're going to look at verse 35 to the end of the chapter. We're going to ask some questions, draw some conclusions. But first we're going to look at this story. So Luke 18 and verse 35, if you have a copy of God's word there. Luke 18, 35 says, As he drew, that's Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. That's what this whole section is about. He's going to Jerusalem, and he passes through Jericho. Jericho is on the way from the north to the south. It's on the way to Jerusalem. And so he passes through. 
Jesus would not be the only one headed to Jerusalem at this time. So it's getting close to Passover, so there would be lots of people going to Jerusalem at that time. And one of the things like a holiday does for lots of people is makes them more generous. So this is prime time for the beggar to be at that spot at that moment. Because we've got lots of people going to Jerusalem, and maybe they'll be kind enough to give him something. So the blind beggar hears the commotion and asks what's going on. Let's go back to the story in verse 37. It says, they told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David. And these are the words we just sang a moment ago. Have mercy on me. Well, there'd be lots of people named Jesus at that time. But Jesus of Nazareth, remember like nothing good ever came out of Nazareth. That was the saying. Jesus is on his way. And the cry, we're going to come back to the cry. The cry is son of David. Two times. It says that he cried out, Son of David. What did that mean? Why did he, why did he reference Jesus in that way? Then he, then he cries out, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy. Just kind of tucked us away. That's always the right prayer for human beings to make. There will never be a bad time for that prayer in your life. Whether you feel vulnerable or weak or rebellious or sinful or like, I've got to turn things around. It always is the right thing to have on your mouth the the words of this beggar saying, Lord, have mercy. It's a prayer that God, who is abundant in mercy, loves to answer. Lord, have mercy. Verse 39, it says, those who were in front I guess kind of in front of the road as Jesus is passing by. They were telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So we've got kind of, again, the, the people who guard Jesus' attention in some capacity, the bouncers who keep the people that don't need to be in Jesus' presence out of his way, so the people that really do need Jesus' attention can get there. And so they're telling him, in, I mean, it may be impolite, but they're telling him, would you just shut up? Would you shut up? I mean, Jesus said, shh, he doesn't need that right now. So we got people right at the front going, stay away. Shh. And, and you, you can imagine this is somewhat of an uncomfortable scene as he gets louder. Maybe the frequency and the volume increase as he says, son of David, have mercy on me. So it almost reminded me of the disciples earlier in the chapter that people were wanting to bring their little kids to Jesus. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. No, Jesus doesn't have time for this. The people that want to resist this blind man from getting to Jesus, they, they end up having the same result happen to them. Because in verse 40, Jesus, it says, stopped and commanded the blind man to be brought to him. And when he came near... Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus probably points out the same people that were telling him, shut up. He says, no, bring him here. Bring him here. And he dignifies this man with a request. He notices him. And he says, what do you want? Will you tell me what that beggar wanted from just about every individual that came by. 
What he wanted from every individual would be money or food. That's what he wanted. But it's interesting, that's not his response here. How different the story would have been if he said, a little bit of money. I need a little bit of food. But he says something different to this Jesus of Nazareth that he is called Son of David. He says, Lord, let me recover my sight. I don't think he asked that to everybody. I don't think that's what he was normally begging for. Jesus said to him in verse 42, recover your sight. Your faith, and this translation says, has, has made you well. Equally, a valid translation of this, same word, your faith has saved you. I don't know, physically, spiritually? I think it's both here. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I think as we read this story of this blind beggar, far too easily we can forget this is a miracle. I mean, just run through one of these. I mean, and you read the Gospels and you encounter miracle after miracle. And I don't think we always grasp the significance of things like this. So we, we had a guy that woke up one morning and could not see. And by that evening, he could. I mean, if I were to tell you, or you were to read a headline that said, a cure for blindness has been developed by some doctors in Sweden. I, I'm guessing you would be much like me and saying, well, I hope so. That'd be fantastic. And that'd be incredible if that's true. We'll see. Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. But we've just read a story of a man that was blind, but now he could see. When it comes to Jesus, sometimes I, I feel like, maybe this is just me projecting this, but I feel like we've lost our amazement at what he did. I've heard these stories so often. I wonder if sometimes I'm, I'm less than amazed. Oh, yeah, this is the story about the blind man. Oh, yeah. And almost, I can treat it as an episode of some superhero story. You know, it's, oh, in this one, Jesus does this. This is no fairy tale. It wasn't for that man. It wasn't for the crowd that saw it. It was a real-life encounter with this man that was the son of David. The beggar's faith saved him. And there's a significant reaction of immediate praise, glorifying God and following Jesus. That's the story. It's interesting, this story comes right after a, a rich young ruler walks away from Jesus, not healed, but sad. It's interesting, this story comes after disciples, I mean, right before these verses are disciples that cannot perceive what's going on. And ironically, Jesus is going to use a blind man who can see what's going on. Even though he lacks physical sight, he sees things spiritually that the disciples aren't grasping at that very moment. Why do you think this story is in the Bible? What does it mean for us? What does the Holy Spirit want us to grasp in this? This guy's going to get the, the picture on the wall. Model follower of Jesus. I mean, you want your faith to save you. Learn some things from this man. What, what should we learn? What should we process? I think the first question I would ask 
just coming right out of this passage, is do you see Jesus as the son of David? Do you see Jesus as the son of David? The blind man cried out twice. Okay, so maybe we're familiar with religious terminology. But that beggar recognized that Jesus of Nazareth is not just Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of David. This is more than just pulling back uh, ancestry. As if I were to say that I'm the, the son of Sterling, or the great-great-grandson of Sterling Hill. I mean, that, that means nothing to you. It meant something different when this title is thrown out. It meant something different to them when they heard that. We need to work hard, not to miss the significance. So people didn't just randomly throw that out to Jesus or to anyone at that time period. As a matter of fact, you'll look in the Gospels, you won't see that title being given to Jesus that often. So why does he say it? Why does he say it? In our age of like a quick, let me just get a Bible verse for the day. It doesn't always help us to be kind of that quick fix microwave culture. Because sometimes you need to actually look at a theme throughout scripture and understand, okay, when, when this man in one instance says son of David, it's going back to a deep theme in scripture. And bear with me because I think this is one that, that we need to make sure we understand exactly what was said. In the Bible, in ancient Israel, David was made a promise, more accurately a covenant God made with David that one of his descendants would rule forever, for eternity. It was a solemn promise that was made to David. And the promise wasn't just private to David, it was public, in so much that the, the whole nation kind of hung their hopes on this promise of a son of David, a descendant of David, that would rule the world forever. If you want to read more about that, that's in Second Samuel 7. But it's not just there. That theme of a son of David that will rule the world just begins to find its way all throughout Scripture. And it's because when David was king, lots of things were good in Israel. God's enemies were being defeated and David had a heart for the Lord. And like, that was the good days. And so they longed for that time of David where Israel would once again become the military and the economic superpower. They longed for that day of David. The hope was expressed in many places in scripture that God, God, keep your promise to David and give us a ruler who will usher in a new age. So here, Jeremiah 23, 5. We're just going to look at several of these verses in the Old Testament that kind of point to this son of David that's going to come. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This coming king, this coming son of David, who will rule in just a few weeks, we'll be hearing some of these verses more in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. His name will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But then notice verse 7, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. So there's no, there's no end to his government. It will be a worldwide government, but it will be a peaceful one. And on the throne of who? On the throne of David, this one who is coming will sit. He will establish the kingdom, uphold it with justice. Isaiah talks even more about this 
son of David, this someone in the line of David. In Isaiah 11, 1, there shall come forth the shoot from the stump of Jesse. It's kind of like a, Jesse was the father of David. Now it's a, like a, a greater David, an, another David, a new David will come. Isaiah 55, 3, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. There's one more in Ezekiel 34. I mean, this, this is just a sampling of the promises that Israel was banking on. It says, I will set up over, over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord I have spoken. So why, why am I taking valuable minutes of your time to talk through this, this title Son of David. It's because God planned on doing something significant through a son of David. God made that promise, this covenant, not just to David, not just to the people of Israel, but to the whole world. That's why it's significant when you open the book of Luke. You read through Luke 1 and 2 and 3. You find genealogies of the mother of Jesus and the earthly father of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, and they're both descendants of David. That's why it's significant in the, the Christmas story, the nativity story, we, we say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior. And we've got a beggar who isn't just throwing stuff out. Jesus, son of David. What is he saying? You're, you're the one. You're the one. You're the Messiah. You're the ruler. You're the one we've been waiting on. You're the shepherd. You're the king. You're, the, you're going to be the one that, that leads Israel, that, that is a light to the nations, to the whole world. You're the one. He's crying, that, crying out on the side of the road. Amazingly. Romans 1 says this about this descendant from David, Jesus Christ. Says Paul is a servant of Christ Jesus. He's called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which God had promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This son of David is risen and reigning. This is why. This is why I spend so much time on what a blind man in the Middle East said 2,000 years ago. Because I think he had insight that I want to make sure you have. That you might know that Jesus is the culmination of God's plan to save the world. Do you think of, do you think of Jesus in those terms? It's easy not to. So if I were to tell you, imagine the most stressful, perplexing thing globally right now. We'd have a long list. If I were to tell you, think of the most complicated, the thing you fear the most as it comes to like in our, in our country, we would have a long list. If I got personal, what's the thing that you're struggling with? What is the burden that you came in bearing that you feel like I can't get any relief from this? The thing you're worried about, the thing that may change, the thing that you're, you're uncertain of, the, the thing that, that worries you, that, that you're afraid of, that you keep keeps you up at night. What is that thing? And if I were to say, yeah, all of that, let me just make sure you're clear that Jesus is the ruler over all of that. Jesus is the one who will come to deliver, will come to rescue, 
will come to rule all things and come to make all things new. So you pin your hope on your bank account. You pin your hope on that, that job. You, you pin your hope on getting accepted into that school. You pin your hope on, on all sorts of things, on getting, getting some sort of security. And I would say, but Jesus is the one who is the son of David that you can really hope in. You pin your hopes on yourselves. I'll, I'll manage through the crisis. I'll keep my you know, feet on the ground. I'll be able to handle this. I would say, but Jesus is the one who's the son of David. For them, it was hard to recognize. I mean, so one blind man says it, but a whole crowd probably is not picking up all of that because that didn't quite fit their expectation of what the son of David would really look like when he did come. That was their problem. For us, we know the details. We know Jesus came as the son of David, but for us, we can't see him. So we wait. We sang that a moment. We wait, God, for you. We say, even so, come Lord Jesus, because we don't see you now. He hasn't just materialized physically in, in our presence this morning. This is Messiah, he's saying. This is the son of David. This is my rescue. This is my deliverer. All of God, the promises of God are, are yes in him. Is he, so when I say, is he the son of David? To you, you process all of what that means. The blind man calls him the son of David, but let's look at something else. What the the blind man is noted for is his faith. And so here's the question. Do you have faith like this blind beggar had? Jesus told him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. What kind of I think this is important. I mean, we have the question, like, do you, do you have faith? But a question might be, what, what kind of faith are we talking about? What exactly are we talking I mean, faith is a very nebulous term these days. So inevitably, you're going to hear someone say, my faith is very important to me. But like, I always want to know, well, your faith in what? In who? Your faith in yourself? So... The kind of saving faith that this man had, what, what was going on there? What was that faith that made him well? For the beggar, it wasn't just a kind of a, I just, I'm just kind of a person of faith. It wasn't for him on that day. It was very specific. It had to do with one individual. Do you have faith like the blind beggar? Faith means that a person is receiving Jesus I mean, Luke 18 would tell us, just as a child does. That's how you enter into the kingdom. Faith means that you are receiving his justification. Not that you've done enough to be righteous, but that God outside of you has declared you righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. And you're resting in that. That's what faith means. Faith means you're turning from everything else. Unlike the rich young ruler we talked about last week who couldn't do it. Faith means you're turning to Jesus and following him much like the disciples who said, we've left everything to follow you. What does faith mean? Faith means you accept the message of Jesus Christ. The message, the story of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, the sending of his Holy Spirit to keep us until the day he comes back for us. 
means we accept that as true. And it, and it then means we, we have our entire life. Faith means we take our life and we just wrap it around that, wrap it around him. And so much so that it shapes our values and it shapes our priorities. It shapes our relationships. It means that we declare our allegiance to him, much like this blind man who said, Jesus, Lord, I want to recover my sight. We don't just accept the benefits of him saving us and say, but I want to be the Lord of my own life. But we accept him as Savior and Lord. We say, wherever you go, I'll follow. I'm following you. That isn't like fuzzy faith. It's that clear and that direct. Do we have that kind of faith in Jesus? Is it growing? And God has a way of taking us, even when we have the very little faith, like the man who said, you know, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. We, we may feel that way. And he has a way of growing our faith. And he grows it through very difficult times. And we go through struggles. And yet we hang on to the fact that I trust in Jesus, even though I'm going through this trial. Or we experience loss. Or we fail. Or we, we have an unanswered prayer. And in the midst of that, we say, I still am trusting you. I, don't, I can't explain it all. I'm frustrated by lots of things. I wish I could rearrange things in my life. But, but I do know this. I'm trusting in Jesus. When we have that kind of faith of Jesus, in Jesus and it's growing, it means we say no to things simply because Jesus matters more to us. It means that was, as we feel like we are just a target for everything awful in the world, we know Jesus is our shield and our refuge. We know Jesus honors our obedience. And as we talk about it and share about it, our faith grows. Sometimes... I feel like I'm the last person who might be able to have faith like the beggar. Because you see your own weaknesses, you see your own struggle with sin. And you go, I mean, he, he wow, this is a stand-up guy that could have that kind of faith. They could cry out to a man, say, I want to receive my sight. And sometimes we feel so weak. Maybe today you, you feel like, Curtis, I, w- I want to believe, but if you knew the marriage that I'm in, I... It's troubled. It's not good. And I struggle. I struggle. With, with my, my faith in God, even. Or maybe you're slugging it away as a parent, maybe even as a single parent, and you're saying, I, I'm struggling in my faith. I'm, I, I don't understand exactly what God is doing. I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm like an all-star of faith here. Or maybe something in your past is causing guilt and shame that you can't seem to move past. Or maybe you're just growing older and weaker and your, your faith is struggling and you're, you're trying to see God's goodness in things. Maybe you're a caregiver for someone and you're just watching their life go away before you and it's painful and you're saying, Lord, I'm, in, I'm struggling here. Help me. Maybe you feel like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to be to the level of the blind beggar who will just call out to the Lord, I, I'm struggling. But I just want to remind you that of all the people that you might have thought would have faith in what God is doing through Jesus... We might have thought, a person that's been blind for a long time, he seems like the, the last one that would really think, I bet God's up to something here. He might have been the last one we would think. He would have been maybe the first one we'd say, I don't know that I believe in a God if I'm, if I'm here blind. But here's the one crying out. There was hope for him. There was hope for you. God takes the least likely and often surprises us with it.
That's why 1 Corinthians says it this way. You consider your calling, brothers, brothers and sisters. Not, not many of us were wise according to worldly standards. Not, not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. But that was never the entrance exam anyway. You see, God shows what is foolish in the world. To shame the wise, God shows what is weak in the world. To shame the strong, God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might ever boast in the presence of God. And because of what God has done, this is a powerful word here, because of what God has done, you are in Christ Jesus. Only God can do the impossible. We have we have disciples that are blinded to what Jesus is doing right in front of them. And here we have a, a person that physically can't see crying out to the Lord saying, I, I believe in you. So maybe a step forward for you today would be, Lord, I believe. I believe. I really do. Help my unbelief. Help me where I'm struggling. Maybe you cry out, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. There's one other thing in this story that stands out to me, and it, it actually makes me ask a question not to me individually or you individually, but to us as a group. And that is when I read this story, especially the end, I want to ask this, is our praise and is our joy contagious? Because it was there. It was there. Verse 43, immediately he recovers his sight and he follows Jesus glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they glorify God as well. They give praise to God. So it's interesting, this crowd, I don't know like if the front of the crowd were the people that were just the ones saying, blind people don't need to talk to Jesus today. Be quiet. But in some senses, it seems like the crowd is flipped here because now the crowd is glorifying, giving praise to God. When I read this, I, I began thinking, so it's, it's the same Jesus who changed life then, that changes lives now. We gather in his name every Sunday. Is that same contagious joy present when we sing about the good news that Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves? Is that like regular? Is that a pretty, pretty ordinary theme at Ogletown? When we gather, you can expect we're going to praise God because of what he's done for us. And we're glad for that to actually magnify and mushroom. Even when we don't feel like it, we're going to go against our feelings on that because we know God has done something for us that we could not do of ourselves. When we gather in small groups, and I hope you do that. I hope, I hope you're gathering in homes and you're sharing meals together. When you do that, maybe even a few moments when you share lunch together, will part of the conversation just naturally drift to, God is amazing. He has done some amazing things in my life, in the life of my family. I, I pretty regularly meet up with, with people from the church and meet up with uh, guys in particular. And, and this was a reminder to me, like part of our conversation ought to be not in, a, not in a strange way, not in a weird way, but in a totally normal way. Part of that conversation should be, if we are both in Christ, that Jesus has done something for us. And I love this picture because of what happened for the blind man. There's a crowd that actually also gets invited into that joy, invited into that praise. Is that happening here? Is there joy in someone and something that has transformed our lives? Is there joy in being around other people's lives that have been transformed? What it really boils down to, 
Like whether we're going to have joy or whether we're going to praise is, I think it's directly tied to how valuable we count it that God has done this work for us in Jesus. Like does that, that seem like a valuable thing? Does that seem like valuable news to us? Most days I get something like these things in the mail. So I get the money mailer. It's like getting money in my mailbox, they tell me. It's full of coupons and $150 off and it tree service there. I have a category for these things, right? I get these toward the end of the week. This is uh, Zingo's. I think it's 59 cents for uh, tuna fish, if you're interested. I, I'm, I, I get these things and you can tell how valuable they are to me. I mean, that's not to say there's something, I may go to Zingo's, I may go there today. I may pick up some things and I may be glad they're on sale. I may be glad there's a coupon in here that helps me save some bucks. And, and I can just file these along with my every other day between Comcast and Verizon and my waste disposal and all sorts of things, all manner of stuff that I'm getting regularly in my box. And those things are of so little value to me most of the time. Ah, maybe. I mean, if I need it, I guess it's great. But then there, there are occasionally these times where you actually like get a check in the mail. You get a card in the mail. You get a reimbursement. You get confirmation that you were accepted into this or that. And it's funny. I mean, I, I only need about a millisecond to just scan the mail and go, this matters, this doesn't. This matters, this doesn't. Doesn't, 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 doesn't. Trash. That's about all it takes, right? But the things that matter, I mean, I get something in the mail that matters. I might text Shauna and say, the check finally came, or we finally got that letter that we were looking for. I've never texted her about the Zingo's ad. Got the mail, just thought you would want to know. Two years, Verizon will take care of us. Never done that, never done that. And neither of you, because it really doesn't matter that much. It doesn't really blip the radar that much. I do have to wonder sometimes if collectively our appreciation collectively, not just individually, collectively of what Jesus has done for us just gets filed in the nice, I guess, when I need it, but not really significantly life-altering. Not worth doing a, a victory dance over. Not worth really letting anybody know. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad, but collectively when that happens, you know what church devolves into? Just a collection of programs, collection of people. You know what worship services amount to? Not much. Because we're singing about this thing, it really doesn't matter much to us anyway. There's no joy. I mean, it's hard to imagine how it would be contagious if it really didn't. If church is only like, oh, I just kind of like to have a balance of things in my life, so I show up to church occasionally. Or, or I like to attend religious kinds of things. That's all church is. But, but when we truly grasp the news that something valuable, something life-altering has happened, we become a different kind of community, don't we? We become that community of joy that's not manipulated and not manufactured artificially that has found 
this truth that Jesus rescues people. And he does it when they're five, and he does it when they're 18, and he does it when they're 40, and he'll do it when they're 70. But Jesus rescues people and and changes their life and makes life worth living. And because of that, then we have something to sing about. We have something to enjoy in each other's company. We have something to praise God. We've become the community of confidence that knows this is just what Jesus does. He notices, he cares, he calls, he saves, and, and then he changes someone's life forever. This is exactly what he does. And we know that because he did it in our lives. And we know that because he did it in, in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and when we sing about him, how will we not be joyful in that? That's hardly in the category of junk mail. We're a community that recognizes this is why I was made, not just to make myself more economically secure or be comfortable or have all kinds of pleasure or kind of get this status academically, but I was made to give glory to God. We were made to do that. We become the community that has the jet fuel of God's love compelling us to love him and love others. In, in short, what we will be is we will be contagious Christians. And this church family will be a contagious church family because people will walk in with no category for Jesus who has done something for us that we will spend eternity praising him for. In a moment, I want to ask, I want to ask God to help us understand who the son of David is and what it really means to follow him. And what it means to have faith that he is who he said he is. And I want to ask the Lord to help us have that contagious joy and praise. Where we can't get through days without saying, God has been so good to me. Can I ask you to bow your head? Church, here again, the words of scripture here. Immediately. The blind man recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Lord, may our joy be like that of the crowd. And that praise, help us, Lord, where we go through the motions. We take our faith for granted. We yawn and are bored at your miracles. We forget you've delivered us from the domain of darkness. And you've brought us into the kingdom of light. Forgive us, Lord. Give us faith to believe. And and I pray especially for the person that's struggling because they have so many doubts and they have so many fears that, that faith is hard for them right now. Give them, in this moment, faith to believe. Lord, may we confess as a church, you are the son of David, the one who had a plan 3,000 years ago and is working out his plan today and will do so for eternity. All praise to you, Lord. May we give you our full attention. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.